the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, continuing as we are from Fighter World, and no doubt you will hear throughout the interview that we conduct today, a series of F-35s taking off. That's all part of the of the uh, the dream. Air Vice Marshal retired John Kindler, AOAFC, as an RAAF fighter pilot and qualified test pilot. He's flown 35 different types of aircraft, but na- mainly the F-86 Sabre, the Mirage and the F-A-18 Hornet. Now, he held squadron, wing and group command positions in fighter operations. He was appointed Air Commander Australia in March of 2000. He was responsible for the operational training and employment of some 10,000 Air Force combat personnel and the RAAF's fleet of combat aircraft. John has co-chaired Australia's Defence Force Airworthiness Boards, was chairman of the Board of Newcastle Airport Limited. He also advises Pratt and Whitney military engines on defence industry and acquisition policy. John had the unusual distinction of ejecting from a mirage on two separate occasions. John, welcome. Thank you, Gareth. I've got to ask you, why did you enlist back in 1968? I always wanted to fly fighters. How old were you? I was uh, 20, nearly 22. Um, I actually grew up in Switzerland and I had applied for and was uh, accepted to join the Swiss Air Force when my parents decided to come to Australia. Uh, and I thought, what an opportunity. I'll go see whether I can join the, the, Australian. the RAAF. <laughs> um, when I got here, though, I found out it wasn't that easy. I was a Swiss national and they wanted me to be an Australian. But luckily, my father had a historical buff friend who had read somewhere that Queen Victoria and the Swiss government um, signed an agreement back in those days that any national of the Commonwealth or Switzerland could do service in the other country, provided they took on the nationality. So here I am. And an Australian as well. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) Now, look, obviously uh, you've been in different planes and different courses. The Mackie, the Sabre conversion, the Mirage conversion, the Hornet conversion in 1987. What were the steps like going across those different platforms? Well, uh, I had flown Piper Super Cups before I flew the Mackie on pilot's course. Uh, The Mackie was just so much smoother, uh, more pleasant, you know, to fly than the Piper Cup, no tailwheel and things like that. Uh, A very easy aeroplane to fly, I have to say, although, you know, it doesn't mean I had an easy time on pilot's course. Uh, Instructors are the same all over the world. They made it hard. But, uh, no, I enjoyed the Mackie. Uh, The biggest thrill flying the Sabre once we got over a bit of flying on the Vampire here was the acceleration of that aeroplane compared with the Mackie. And, of course, the first time you flew it, you didn't have an instructor yelling in your ears. Uh, That was fantastic. He was on your wing, though, mind you. Um, and the Mirage, well, that was, an, you know, even even better from a kick point of view uh, when you took off. 
but every aeroplane was so different and, sure. and typical of its era. You know, the Sabre was a lovely aeroplane to fly, but it had some vices. During my course, I actually managed to get into a spin. I recovered from the spin after about six turns. We were doing what was called the vertical split, and I was the wingman on the outside high end of the turn, right. and I had to go high, and the lead would go low. And I went high and then rolled and it, found myself in a spin. You know, yes, yeah. yes. Up, but we, of course, we started very high, like up at 40-plus thousand feet, so that was... It gave you plenty room. of room for, yeah. to correct an, yeah, a yeah. mistake. With the Mackie... You've gone into the Sabres and then you did a Sabre conversion. What's involved in a conversion when you move from one platform to another? Well, a lot of theory, you know, normally a week of, of ground theory. Uh, we in the Air Force, I think most Air Forces insist that people know their checks inside out and, you know, off by heart because in a fighter cockpit you don't ha often have time to pull out a book and, and read your next action, so you've got to, <laughs> you've got to, recover, you've got to react very quickly. So uh, we spent a bit of time on a simulator, which was a fixed base simulator in a cabin here on the base. So simulator as in to the same as the configuration of the plane you're moving into? Yep, yeah, the right. cockpit configuration, right, but okay. of course it didn't move. But you could go through starting the engine, you could pretend you were taxing. Uh, you could go through all the checks of pre-takeoff, mm. after takeoff. You could fly the thing, pretend the instruments all worked like you were flying, but the ca the cockpit was stationary, fixed. Uh, I must say, the Hornet is probably the best aeroplane I flew. It's the easiest, but the most competent uh, aeroplane in terms of weapon system, mm. uh, reliability, dependability. Uh, performance, uh, you know, the Mirage supposedly went to Mark II, but that was a one once in a lifetime event, uh, which was is you know interesting to see, but not a big deal. Quite frankly, it's just a number on the dial. <laughs> but the Hornet uh, really was the I think the best all-round handling and performing aeroplane, and most useful as a combat platform. Mm. What makes the Australian Air Force? so much better than a lot of others. A lot of people have said to me, we punch above our weight. What do you think, looking at your career, has made the RAAF so good? Yeah, I, I agree with that statement. Uh, I think what makes us better than a lot of air forces that I know, and I mean big air forces, mm -hmm. uh, is we select our people carefully and we train them very well. And I think the Australian character is... Uh, an attribute. We, in, in what way? We tend we question authority. We don't follow blindly. It's something that you really cherish in air combat. People who use their initiative uh, rather than wait to be directed. Uh, mm. And and I think that's what makes us different. Our, t our technicians and our aircrew are top class, top of the world. Mm. I mean, I just remember going to an exercise with Americans. Uh, an F6, they had an F16 squadron mm -hmm. there, and, and we had an F18 squadron, and they had 350 people on the ground looking after 16 aeroplanes, and we had 150 doing the same job, and we managed, you know, without without any problems, yeah. uh, we managed, you know, more than double the people. Now, I must admit, we couldn't run that show 24 hours. 
and the Americans are designed to work around the clock. Well, the squadrons are... 10 or 15 to... times their population too, which would no doubt help. Exactly. Yeah. Just as far as the air crew is concerned, again, previous pilots have spoken so positively about our air crew. Tell me about the air crew, the importance of the air crew. I mean, we know a fighter pilot, he goes up and that's, or she, and that, that's the fighter pilot. But to get up, they have to have a land crew. How good? Our hours. Our techos? Yes. The best in the world. Yeah, I trust them all. Used to trust them all blindly, I still would. Um, they're fantastic, uh, even though a couple of problems led to my two ejections. But you know, We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. No, but I mean, they're the best in the world and they do a great job and they're very flexible and multi-skilled, uh, whereas many other air forces still work on uh, single skills. You know, you're an engine fitter and that's all you do. You only mm. touch engines or airframe, whereas we, we have ours are much broader. Multitasking. Multi-skilled multi and uh, capable of taking on so many different jobs. Uh, and they're wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. You know, they, they do their work with their eyes open rather than uh, in a sort of a parrot fashion. Right. I said you enlisted in 1968, but from 1971 to 1973, and yes, we are leading to the Mirage, but between 1971 and 73, you become a test pilot. Uh, you go to test pilot school in the UK. Well, how did that occur? What brought that on? <laughs> it was fascinating, really, because uh, I, re I wanted to do FCI course, and I was told, no, you're doing test pilot's course. Uh, and I was married, we had two babies, oh. and we went from Butterworth to England, which was just a nightmare. Uh, but we got to England and I did uh, number three School of Refresher uh, training course at RAF Leeming to become familiar with British air traffic procedures mm -hmm. and especially the weather. It's the first time in my life I'd taken off in snow <laughs> uh, and during a snowstorm and landed in snow and never saw the sky because it was just cloudy everywhere we went. So I did that for a few weeks and then I did test pilot's course. And uh, test pilot's course was the most difficult course, the most difficult thing I think I've ever done in my life. Really? Oh yes, it was uh, hard on uh, academics. We had three weeks of pure academics. Uh, the flying I enjoyed immensely because we, I can't remember how many types, but it's one of those, 30, several of those 35 types mm. we flew. I did what was called a fast jet test pilot's course, so I flew the Hunter uh, and the Lightning, and, uh, but also Argosy and Andover aeroplanes and helicopters and my end of course uh, exercise was to fly the Harrier T Mark IV. Uh, wow. on a, what was called a preview exercise. Uh, you're supposed to be evaluating the Harrier for your Air Force. Uh, and the course was, I mean, I worked so hard that in the last 10 days, I didn't realise I had an abscess underneath my, some of my wisdom, two of my wisdom teeth, until I stopped and suddenly I felt pain. And you ended up in hospital having them both taken out and back home uh, in time to go home. A doctor friend of mine, we were talking about pain the other day and he was saying sometimes the brain diminishes the pain in a certain part of your body because something you're doing is more important. So you, yep. you've just proved his point well remarkably. <laughs> well, you're sitting here, it's the 21st century, uh, but in 1972 you're in a mirage. What happened? We had done a what we call a split navigation exercise to join up and make a simulated attack on a, what was actually a pipe factory in southern Malaysia. 
and we're just before the join up when I heard the pitch dampers, a pitch and your dampers pop in the cockpit. And I, it just went click. Pitch and your dampers stabilise the aircraft oscillations, right? Uh, especially high speed or transonic. Yep. Okay. Didn't have much of an effect at the speed I was doing at 400 knots. Okay. So it was quite safe to fly without that. Okay. So you go back but, to the you fuel. know that was un- uncalled for, unexpected kind of thing. Yep. The inverter was working. I thought, hmm, it's unusual. Anyway, we're ready joining up with the other part, the other Mirage. It's supposed to be four, but two, only two of us got airborne. Uh, I joined up, and just before we joined up, I, I'm looking to my left, 10.30, looking for the other guy, and the engine firelight came on. <laughs> and so I said to the other guy, uh, I said, um, I've got an engine firelight. No other symptoms. So we joined up and I said, I told him I'll start to climb, turn right a bit and climb towards the Malacca Straits. Yep. Uh, and we're doing 400 knots. I left, I selected full power and, and started climbing. Um, when I turned, the we had an attitude indicator called the Bijou Ball in the Mirage. Mm-hmm. When I turned, that rolled with me, but when I rolled out again, it stayed in the turn. And it still had an engine firelight. One of the things you had to do with engine, if you had a firelight was press to test. And if the light came on, I mean it was on, the afterburner light came on and it went out after a few seconds, but the engine firelight stayed on. Mm. So funny things were happening in the cockpit. The, st- the control column started to snatch to the left and... The, my, the wingman was sitting on my left nine o'clock level with me, only a few wingspans out. Uh, and I decided, you know, I'll, I'll keep going as far as I can, as long as I don't see any fire. Yep. At this stage, I, I didn't know, but my radio had failed. And it was the red set radio. We called it the red set. It was on the back left-hand side of the aeroplane. Um, I looked out at my, my mate. And I'm looking through the in the mirror, and I could see flames, flames. at the back of the aeroplane. Uh, now, the the other guy had apparently told me that there was fuel leaking, or eventually it, he said, "I think it's smoke." And then I saw the flames shooting outside the aeroplane. So that's when I declared a mayday and jumped out. Mm. You're travelling at you said what 400 knots at that stage? 400 knots, yep. Well, that's yep. not slow. No. The acceleration, it was awesome, but, you know, I didn't really feel very much. Sure. Uh, I think uh, adrenaline was pumping. And I, I looked down and I could see I was going to land in the trees. It turned out to be a rubber plantation. When I landed, um, I landed on the edge of a crater in the ground and my left leg completely collapsed and I could feel my knee really hurt. But I tossed myself on the bottom of the hole and, you know, screamed at the pain. But I got up, walked up, grabbed the chute. I was out. Of, I got got out of the harness. Unbelievable. Grabbed the chute and laid it out on the grass, hoping somebody would see it if they were looking for me. Um, and it would have been less than six or seven minutes after hitting the ground that I heard this chopper, w- waka 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 waka, waka yeah. sound in the distance. <laughs> 
and it was uh, three squadron RAF had been doing the guy had been doing circuits at Tenga Air Force Base, which is where we were based. Sure. Um, and he just took off from the circuit and came and looked for me, and I was in the helicopter and back on the ground. You know, in within half an hour. Unbelievable. Just out of interest, the plane. What happened to the plane? It obviously crashed somewhere. It. I saw it going nose down. Uh, it had rolled, sort of. It had kept rolling, and it was rolling to the left. Um, and big flames coming out the back, and it, it it hit the ground pretty close to vertical. I know the board mm. of inquiry went and had a look at the hole, uh, and things were bubbling out of the ground, which was kind of you know there was a lot a big hole full yep. of water, of course, filled up with water. So did anyone ever was the plane sufficiently intact for them to assess what happened? Or just I think it's still going you know <laughs> to the other end of the earth. Uh, <laughs> Because Jeez. at going in and hitting the ground at that sort of speed and the mass of, you know, the concentrated mass of the aeroplane, it just kept going. It just went in the hole. They only recovered a few bits and pieces that came Well, to the fortunately, circuit. you were recovered. That's, that's most important. That was 1972. Another incident happens a bit later. We'll come to that in a moment. But tell me about your involvement with the accident investigation. Uh, I think from 1985 to 1986. <laughs> That's an interesting thing to be involved in when you had to eject from a mirage, but be that mm. as it may. Well, it was actually one of the best courses I've ever done. Uh, the, uni- the, uh, u- they call them? the Flight Safety Officers course at University of Southern California, co-run by the USAF and University of Southern California. Uh, and one of the guys that stood out in my mind was Chater Mason, a psychologist, who gave us lectures on uh, human performance and human behaviour, uh, especially relating to accidents mm-hmm. and so on. And he was absolutely fascinating, a total card. And I, th- I found that what I learned about accident investigation put together with what I knew about aeroplanes from test pilots mm-hmm. course, best combination ever. I think for anybody to sort of investigate accidents because I was across the dynamics of aircraft accidents uh, but also the human element of you know how accidents occur and how people behave in accidents so yes I did investigate uh, three accidents uh, that occurred in my time three mirage accidents Mm. Uh, we had a one or two accidents every year in those days what does that say about the mirage uh, well, all three accidents had nothing to do with the aeroplane itself. Pilot error? Probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. One, aer- one accident, we didn't recover the pilot or the aeroplane. Okay. Uh, in fact, two of them, we didn't recover pilot and the aeroplane. And one of them was daytime, the other one was nighttime. Uh, the daytime one still is a mystery. The general public... Uh, hear about deaths overseas in combat. Mm. Um, from what you're saying, uh, there are a lot of accidents that occur within the defences, let's stay with the RAAF, where people end up deceased. Is there, is there a high incidence of, of injury, stroke, death, when you're in peacetime, when you're flying, when you're involved with, a, with the Air Force? There can be. I think we've improved out of sight in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, a lot to do with the way we now train people. Uh, we do risk management, risk assessment and management, uh, you know, mitigating risks to a maximum extent. 
a lot to do with the aeroplane itself too. You know, uh, the the Hornet is a, a much more stable platform uh, than say the Mirage was, um, and we did things in the Mirage that, in hindsight, probably shouldn't have done. Shouldn't have been done, like nighttime navigation using pretty basic navigation systems. Mm. And uh, you, if you weren't in 100% on the ball, uh, we had accidents, and we did. You know, guys, mostly loss of orientation uh, at night, not knowing whether they're upside down or whatever, mm. flying into the ground, or bad timing, mistiming, and so on. Yeah, so, yeah. but that has improved in the last... Out of sight, out of absolutely sight. out of sight. The women who now are part of the RAAF yep. and will be talking to a, a flight lieutenant sometime soon uh, who's into fighter jets, what impact have they made? What improvement or ad- addition have they made in, by becoming part of the RAAF? Well, I think for starters, we've got a bigger recruiting base. You know, I think it was it's a great idea that the government finally changed the rules and uh, allowed anybody that wants to join the service regardless of gender or colour can do so yep. uh, and that's the best thing you know I have absolutely I have never had I've flown with female pilots but none not fighter pilots in our air force and they're just as competent as any bloke is the they? fighter pilot male or female a special breed of Australian well speaking of fighters yeah, here, it here we go yeah. <laughs> yeah I think so I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking fighter pilots are egotists and uh, they, you know, they do everything on their own. Um, I always say to the multi-crewed platforms, there's nothing like a crew of 12 fighters and being the lead of those 12 aircraft. That's what I call leadership. Mm. It's, it's much easier to be the leader in, the, in a crewed aeroplane when they're all at your mercy and sitting behind you and can't do anything about what you're doing with mm. the aeroplane. Uh, being able to control, and sure, fighter pilots tend to be individuals, but being able to control a dozen individuals in the air, you can't always control all of them, but you know, being able to control them in combat or simulated combat, that's what I call leadership and crew, and crew coordination. There's no I in the word team. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, after you got rescued in 1972... You probably got back to base and thought, that'll never happen again. You come back, sorry, you come back to Australia and it's 1982 and wow and behold, you're in a mirage and it happens again. Not quite the same, but it happens again. Tell us about that. We were doing the first fleet support mission with the Navy. It was during the time of the carrier decision and the Hornet decision and, and the Navy insisted and the Chief of Air Force said we will do fleet support. So we put the big tanks, 374 gallon tanks on a couple of mirages, in fact four of us, and we went down to Nara so we could stay down there for the longest possible time doing what the Navy wanted us to do, which was make do simulated attacks on the ships. And we were doing that, and it was a miserable day, 2nd of August 1983, pouring rain, uh, and we're flying around at low level pretending to be uh, Exocet missiles or whatever the Navy wanted us to be going outbound and then coming inbound from different directions mm-hmm. and simultaneously and breaking away 
at the end, you know, before we got over the ship. Uh, and we had just turned inbound 30 nautical miles from HMAS Hobart, my wingman and I, when in the turn I gave him the lead and I said, you take the lead. And so as we came out of the turn, I'm looking for him in, in rain uh, and below cloud. We're below 1,000 feet over the sea, which was just white with foam. And I'm looking for him. I said, oh, I think I've dropped back a bit. So I moved the throttle forward, not thinking about it, you know, and expecting a change. And nothing happened. We'll let that F-35 take off or land, whatever it's doing at the moment. Sorry, go ahead. Take off, I think. Uh, nothing happened. In other words, I kept dropping behind further. And I looked down at the RPM gauge and I looked back up at him and I looked down and I said, flight, flight idle RPM on the RPM gauge, you know, and no response from the engine. So I slammed the throttle backwards and forwards a couple of times. And I'm looking at the airspeed and going through 350, 330, 310, 300, 290 knots, just while I'm looking at it, like slowing down. <coughs> I had those big tanks on and uh, it was slowing down so quickly I couldn't believe it. So I slammed the throttle again, I punched the tanks off thinking that will give me some time, a bit less drag, uh, and they went and I declared a, uh, a pan initially and then a mayday when the engine at 220 knots and 800 feet above the water in pouring rain, I said, I'm getting out of here. Uh, there was an electric throttle in the engine that you in the aircraft that you could initiate sure. uh, in case what we think happened the throttle became disconnected the throttle cable became disconnected from the from the fuel control unit so but I looked at that I looked at my speed and I looked at the weather and I said I'm getting out of here so out I went yeah same sensation as 1972 or different ejection because the first seat was an om4 it had three cartridges in it three shotgun cartridges if yes. you like uh, this one had one cartridge and a rocket motor it was the om6 uh, seat and so after the initial jolt canopy went but i used the bottom handle this time uh, with one hand mm -hmm. and flew the airplane with the other uh, after the initial jolt, there was then that sort of nice, smooth acceleration from the rocket motors. Um, but everything else was the same. Again, I had to lower the dinghy pack because I was over water. And it didn't take me long before I was in the water. Uh, I got ready to enter the water by rotating the parachute buckle uh, and holding my thumb behind it so I could squeeze it as soon as the pack hit the water, sure. which I did. And I fell out of the shoot and it blew away it was uh, state 5c 30 foot waves uh great season. howling gale pouring rain uh the dinghy inflated thank god and i climbed into it but i noticed it was black instead of orange uh which was not a mirage dinghy pack which kind of confused me a little bit but all the usual goodies were in there i had my radio so i got the in the dinghy and called my wingman, I could hear him, he was overhead. Sure. Uh, and the Learjet that was also working with HMS Hobart. And I told him, look, I'm fine, a bit wet, uh, sitting in the dinghy totally submersed because the waves just kept breaking over the top. There was no point trying to, you know, bail out the water out of the dinghy. 
so they said, okay, well, Hobart's on her way. She was 30-odd miles away, nautical miles. Mm-hmm. So I thought, mm, quarter past three, you know, that will be at least an hour, quarter past four, half past four. Still be a little bit of light around, uh, 2nd of August. Uh, so I waited there and had the odd conversation with the Learjet. They all hung around. Couldn't see anything, but I could hear sure. the aeroplanes. Eventually, I saw the Hobart appearing out of the rain, and I talked the Hobart in on me, on the radio, uh, and they couldn't see me. They came abeam me, uh, and they had the microphone open on the bridge, and you could hear the guys talking. Where is he? And I'd say, left nine o'clock of your bow, about 200 feet. The diver jumped overboard and uh, put a, a, a life a ring around yep. me on a rope and we got pulled against the side of the HMS Hobart. And that was probably the most scary bit of the day because the Hobart was rolling some really badly, you know, stationary in a high sea side on, not facing into the thing. And I, right. saw, I saw these pipes that come out of the side of the exhaust pipes or drain pipes going up and down as the ship went past and there were big pipes you know they're six inches in diameter we might might just let that jet take off i love this place i really do sorry you saw the pipes the sound of freedom eh? (laughs) well done yeah uh yeah i saw these pipes go past and i'm bumping against the side of the ship as the ship's rolling and these pipes are going up and down and I thought, this, I'm going to get hit on the head with one of these. So I, I jumped out of the dinghy, which might not have been a good idea, but I just wanted to get away from the ship. Uh, anyway, I got pulled up on the deck, taken inside the ship, and the first thing I remember was the smell of vomit in the ship when I got into the bowels. They took me to sick bay. Of course, the ship had been doing maximum speed for an hour, 30 knots, uh, and the crew, a lot of the crew Couldn't had been go. sick, yeah. had been sick. Uh, they took me to sick bay. I was absolutely wet through, of course. I had whatever I had on me was with me. Uh, I had my helmet this time. This is good, and no <laughs> zip cuts on your no chin. Cuts no, cuts on right. no, no, no. Um, I got taken there. They gave me a, a cup of soup. Uh, they gave me white overalls. Uh, they were dry, which was fantastic. Almost the right size, pretty tight uh, in the groin. Uh, anyway, the next time I thought I was going to die was when uh, uh, an, uh, what was it? a whirlwind came to pick me up from the Hobart to take me back, west, west wind, to take me back to Nara. And uh, I got winched through all the antennas on the ship, again, pretty stationary with the ship rolling, and I'm sort of being threaded through these antennas. What a life you've got. <laughs> Remind no, me not to go flying No, I don't want to do it again. No, sorry, no, go no, on. I probably don't have a chance. Uh, so, yeah, on board the choppers, an hour back to Nara. I spent the night in sick bay at Nara, being interviewed by, I can't remember what, TV channel. Uh, and I remember my wife being cheesed off because she, one of the nurses, a good-looking one, of course, gave me a kiss on the cheek, <laughs> and uh, she's watching this from Williamtown. 
Uh, next yeah. day I flew back in a Mackie. Somebody came and picked me up in a right. Mackie. I was sing. I was short of ride. And uh, back to Williamton. John, uh, a blessed life I think you have. Um, very lucky. Very lucky. Well, yes, but you're part of the best Air Force in the world. Uh, tell me about 77 Squadron. It's very good name. You're part of it, were part of it. Tell me about it. Yes, I was part of it a couple of times. Once as a flight commander back flying Mirages. Mm. And uh, I seem to I remember that those days I spent half my life away from home, more than half actually, two thirds of the year away on deployments in uh, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, not, sorry, not in the Mirage, in uh, New Zealand and all around Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of time away from home. Very special squadron. I don't know, it was the only squadron. Uh, in Australia at that time, uh, in, in, when I was flying the Mirage, uh, the other squadron was two OCU. 76 squadron had been disbanded before. So very special group of guys. Um, and when I became the CEO, I thought I was very lucky, not just to be the CEO of, the fir- of 77 squadron when we got Hornets, but 77 squadron has, has always had a big soft spot. Mm. Uh, I've had a big soft spot yeah. for it. And... Uh, Great number. I mean, I can list all the COs, and they're all they've all done very, very well in the, the Air Force, with some exceptions. Of course, I know some COs of other squadrons that have done yeah, well sure, too. Yeah, sure, sure, of course. But no, but uh, great culture and excellent rivalry in the old days between squadrons. Um, Again, part of the Australian ethos. Exactly. I've got to ask you, you um, this is only for my information, you were a consultant to Pratt and Whitney engines. Is it true that the B-52 in the United States of America uses Pratt and Whitney engines? I believe so, yeah. yeah. They're still going. What? what Unbelievable. Made, <laughs> and they're ex- expected to be still going in 2040, 2050. What makes them so good? What is so good about the engines? Well, I think Pratt and Whitney made, made some good engines. Uh, that, the F-111. Uh, engine was a Pratt & Whitney engine. The C-17 engine that we fly here in Australia now is a Pratt & Whitney engine. Uh, they made their motto is dependable engines uh, and that's all you want from an engine really mm. uh, and we hope I hope that stands for the F-35 as well. I'm sure it does because... So the they're Pratt & Whitney engines as well? It's, an F, it's a Pratt & Whitney engine, yep. So your, your work as a consultant with that company was doing what? Providing them advice on uh, basically translating Australian language into American language and back, uh, but also explaining our culture, our politics, our defence procedures, uh, acquisition uh, processes. Um, And it it is amazing how different we are in terms, in culturally, Mm. you know, uh, we... It's, it's been an, it wasn't an eye-opener because I had flown with Americans all my life. I knew what they were like. I mean, they're marvellous people, the Americans, and I love them dearly. But they, are, they can be so different that they do need to have some things translated, especially the Australian culture that likes to say things the way they are rather than beat around the bush and, and not tell the truth, you know. Oh, that's interesting. It's I mean, interesting. Uh, Pratt & Whitney had an engine problem early in the project and uh, 
the Pratt and Whitney people were very uh, reserved about explaining the details to the minister. And I said, don't. Don't bullshit. Tell them what it is, what's happening, what you're doing about it. And they did. And the minister was impressed. He said, no worries. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, you've had some wonderful experiences in the RAAF, and then you decide to become chair of the Newcastle Airport. Not very far from here, actually, from Fighter World. No. Uh, That was in 2004. You were there for 10 years. How different, and I don't want to dwell on the airport, but how different was that from the career you'd had since 1968? Uh, well, it was not that different from my last few years as air commander um, because it really was dealing with a, a bunch of board members. None of them were ex-military, or uh, but they're all fantastic guys. They're all very skilled. Mm. They had their special skills, uh, you know, some business people, uh, mostly business people, some engineers, some so on. Uh, we worked together as a board, and my job was to uh, keep the board together and focused on where the where the airport was going. Did and you I ever get the itch while job. you were there to get back in a plane behind the? Not really. No, 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 no. no. I think I've had a fantastic time flying aeroplanes, and uh, flying those sort of aeroplanes, you're either doing it full time or you don't do it at yeah. all. John. An amazing career, and like every other person I've spoken to, you are part of a very special culture, celebrating the centenary for 2021, and you're part of a very special, notwithstanding the fact that you started out in Switzerland, you're part of a very select breed of Australians to be part of the RAAF, so I want to thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Gareth. Globally, The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.